it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, October 3rd, 2022, a brand new broadcast week and broadcast month here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Wow, it's October already chill in the air it's crunch time in this election season we've got you covered start to finish we are so glad you're here three to six p.m eastern time every single weekday many ways to listen live you can find out more at guybensonshow.com if you can't catch us as we air there's a podcast for that it is free on demand really growing guybensonshow.com foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts you have options And again, we are just thankful. Meanwhile, on the terrestrial radio side, the Guy Benson Show family continues to grow. Not just a growing podcast, but we have a new affiliate that we are welcoming this week, starting as part of a member of the family here. It is WUSX 98.5 FM in Seaford, Delaware, which is sort of out by the coast there. You know, there's a certain sitting president who spends a lot of time at the beach in Delaware. Some might say too much time. I don't. I think it's better for him to maybe be away from the White House and doing less. But he takes a lot of vacation. Maybe, just maybe, by accident, that president might tune in to the Guy Benson Show on WUSX moving forward. He could maybe learn something. I think we give him a fair shake. We're highly critical, but still. So if you're listening, perchance, Mr. President, hello. There's many ways to listen, including now in your own neck of the woods. So in all seriousness, welcome to WUSX. We're very, very glad to be uh, joining your lineup, and we're glad to have you here on the Guy Benson Show team as well. We are broadcasting all week long from the Hoover Institution at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. Just gorgeous out here. And we did the show... A couple of years back from here, in fact, a few different times, we've done the show from Hoover. They are always great hosts. And then we were off for a couple of years due to the pandemic. Campus was basically closed down. They have very kindly welcomed us back here to Stanford and to Hoover, uh, the Hoover Institution. And we've got one hell of a week in store for you in terms of guests. We'll, of course, be covering the elections very closely and all the news of the day. They also just have an array of incredibly insightful, accomplished people who are fellows here at Hoover. And we will be picking some of their brains throughout the week. So a real treat for us and I think a real treat for this audience as well. Here's what we have in store today on the show. One of those Hoover fellows that I mentioned, Victor Davis Hansen. A big name, a, I would say, heavyweight intellectually. He will join us later on this hour. We'll also check in with Molly Hemingway in our next hour. Andy McCarthy will be here as well on crime. In our final hour, Kevin Hassett, who's a visiting fellow here at Hoover. He will join us in studio. He was one of the top economic advisors to President Trump. 
And I'd like to ask him about the Trump administration's record on the economy, on jobs, on inflation versus what we're seeing from this crew in Washington right now. Is inflation going to keep getting worse before it gets better? Are we in a recession? Kevin Hassett, one of the most credentialed people in the country, I would say, to answer these questions. And we have him one-on-one coming up later here from the radio studio at the Hoover Institution. So as you can tell, I'm fired up to be here. I want to start by talking about the political fallout from Hurricane Ian. They are still in major recovery mode down in Florida in particular. Some cities were decimated. I saw Senator Rubio was talking about how Fort Myers is going to have to essentially be rebuilt. But it is definitely not too soon for the left and the media to start to do what was inevitable, which was try to come after Governor Ron DeSantis and turn this into his Katrina. Now, it's not going to work because the facts do not align with the narrative. They hate him. They want to damage him. They want to, even if they can't get him this time around for governor, they want to put a damper on any national ambitions he might have. So it was just a matter of time for them to try to say, oh, here's a horrible natural disaster that hit the state of Florida. How can we figure out a way to blame DeSantis for this? And you're seeing now, I saw just today on Twitter, some trending topics. DeSantis destroys Florida. Another one, there's a story about uh, questions regarding an evacuation notice that some are saying came too late for one county that really got the brunt of the storm. Why did it take so long? Why was Ron DeSantis asleep at the switch? That's sort of the implication here. A CNN reporter over the weekend presented these questions to DeSantis. I want you to listen to his responses because this is part of the reason why I really like him as a political communicator and as a leader. I don't agree with him on everything. I don't always cheer on everything that he's done. But for the most part, I think he's effective not only because he understands a BS question when he sees one. He is so informed on a granular level that he can push back not just by like hurling insults or questioning the integrity of the reporter or what have you. He can also specifically refute the premise. And that is exactly what he did in this confrontation with CNN. Listen first to Cut 17. Do you stand behind Lee County's decision to not have that mandatory evacuation until the day before the storm? Well, did you, where was your industry stationed uh, when the storm hit? Were you guys in Lee County? No, you were in Tampa. So that's, you know, they were following the weather track and um, they had to make decisions based on that. But, you know, 72 hours, they weren't even in the cone. 48 hours, they were on the periphery. Uh, so you got to make the decisions the best you can. I will say, uh, you know, they delivered the message to people. They had shelters open. Uh, you know, everybody had adequate opportunity to at least get to a shelter within the county. Um, but, you know, a lot of the residents did not um, did not want to do that. I think for probably for various reasons, some people just don't want to leave their home, period. They're island people, whatever. But I think part of it was so much attention was paid to Tampa that I think a lot of them probably thought that they wouldn't get the worst of it. So, you know, they um, but they did. And, and I think it's um, it's easy to second guess them. But they were ready for the whole time and, um, and and made that call when when there was justifiable to do so. 
do you stand behind Lee County's decision not to evacuate and put the orders out until the day before? And he knew almost like the hour by hour trajectory that they were tracking the storm in terms of like all the experts. We had meteorologists on this show. And for a while, for days, the story was this is going to crush Tampa. And so, so much attention was paid to Tampa. The media was all down there. They were working hard in Florida to make sure that the people in that city, in that area, were going to be okay. And then the storm sort of changed path a little bit. And it hit farther south. And then as soon as they saw it changing, they adjusted. But they're sort of asking, why didn't you have a crystal ball? Why couldn't you know in advance where the storm was going to go? When all the experts were saying it was going to go there, and instead it went over here, wasn't this too little too late? They're trying to bootstrap this thing into a scandal for DeSantis, and it's just not what the facts show. right? It's not like they were negligent sitting there saying, oh, well, it might hit them, but let's just do nothing. No. They were using the best forecasts that they had at the time. And by the way, if you tell a bunch of people to evacuate when... The forecasts don't support it. You lose credibility with those people. They won't necessarily listen to you next time or the time after that if you're crying wolf. You, it, there's a delicate balance here. And as soon as they saw this thing turning, they said, okay, it's time to mobilize. Change of plans. This is where it's going to go. Get out. And they did it as soon as they could. And here's CNN. and They're not the only ones. There's news stories. I see a bunch of the national journalists. Ooh, DeSantis, a slow reaction from this county. So she follows up, this reporter follows up, and DeSantis, again, completely prepared. He just knows. He knows more information than the journalists asking the questions. Cut 18. Some of their neighboring counties, though, did have mandatory evacuations before Tuesday. Well, right, but our neighboring, I mean, if you look at, like, um, Tuesday morning, they had moved the track down, models started showing it going to like Sarasota, you know, so that's that. So so they did that. I was in Sarasota that day with them when they were expanding some of their evacuations. You know, Charlotte, I think, did the same thing either Monday night or Tuesday morning. Um, So, you know, but don't forget Sunday, uh, 11 a.m. advisory, it was going to go to Taylor County in North Florida. And so, you know, at some point you got to look to see kind of where this thing is going. So, yeah, no, I mean, I think it I I think that it's um, it's easy to say in hindsight, you know, we had most of our supply station in the Tampa Bay area. As that track moved, we, we shifted our response further south as well. Now, we said there would be impacts for sure. And even when it was going to hit North Florida, it's such a big storm, there was going to be impacts in south southwest Florida as well. But the difference between impacts and having the, the, the eye go there is much different. I mean, it's just a quality answer. It makes sense. It has the benefit of being true. And what they're demanding is basically the ability to tell the future, right? Clairvoyance is what they're demanding of Ron DeSantis. And he's, I think, politely, without calling names, just blowing up the premise of these questions. And this thing that they're trying to get going, like somehow this was a big failure in this county and therefore, obviously, DeSantis is complicit because death Santis because hate. I mean, it's, it's not subtle. I didn't talk about it very much on the air, but I was just wondering, how long is it going to take for them to try to start katrina this thing? 
And of course it won't be for Biden. Of course it wouldn't be for any local Democratic official. It's going to be the closest Republican, preferably one that they loathe. And there's an obvious candidate here. And I thought maybe I'm being too cynical. Maybe this isn't going to happen. But the news media is what it is. And the Democrats, their allies, are who they are. So this was inevitable. Here it is. And you've got DeSantis, I think, responding very well. Now, another thing that he said a few days ago, he gave a very stark warning to any criminals who are thinking about taking advantage of this situation and people's desperation to loot or to ransack. He said there will be no tolerance for that in the state of Florida. He reminded people that it's a Second Amendment state, so be careful what you might do. Like, if you're going to go and try to rob someone, uh, beware. There could be a legal gun owner standing behind that door. Here's what he said in Cut 22. The other thing that we're concerned about, particularly in those areas that were really hard hit, is, you know, we want to make sure we're maintaining law and order. Uh, Don't even think about looting. Don't even think about taking advantage of people in this vulnerable uh, situation. And so local law enforcement is involved in in, in, in monitoring that, you know, I told Kevin if the state needs to help as well, uh, because you, know, you can have people, you know, bringing boats into some of these islands and trying to ransack people's homes. Um, I can tell you in the state of Florida, uh, you never know what may be lurking behind somebody's home. And I would not want to chance that if I were you, given that we're a Second Amendment state. And then that was met with a chorus of outrage. I saw Joy Reid, who is one of the more contemptible race baiters in the country. I hate to say that, but it's true. She said that this is echoes of segregationists. He's trying, he's showing his true colors, telling people not to loot and ransack after a natural disaster as the leader of a state is now apparently just the stuff of segregationists. It's racist. They can't help themselves. The derangement is breathtaking. Meanwhile, here's what a voter in Florida said. This was sort of spur of the moment. This is an African-American voter. His community was flooded by Hurricane Ian. The state had its act together. They were bringing fuel in to make sure people could live their lives. This voter was impressed, and this is now a viral clip in Cut 33. About DeSantis, but that gas is here in Arcadia. I don't know why the rest of y'all, but it's here in Arcadia. So y'all know who we vote for. (laughs) I don't know why the rest of you motherfuckers. I'm voting for DeSantis, and I'm a Democrat. He said, the oil is here in this community, in Arcadia. The oil is here. Like, the proof is in the pudding. The competence has arrived. And he's just saying, I don't know about you, blanks. I'm voting for DeSantis, and I'm a Democrat. I wonder if Joy Reid thinks that he's been bamboozled by this secret racist governor. I wonder if CNN thinks that this man should actually be angry at DeSantis because flooding happened at all. How could DeSantis not have single-handedly stopped it or predicted the exact track of the storm? They make themselves look so petty and so silly. There are legitimate criticisms of this guy and any politician. This stuff, it's just so weak. I think it's so revealing. They're scared of him. They've got nothing here.
By the way, brand new Siena poll out today in Florida. DeSantis plus eight over Charlie Crist. Rubio plus seven over Val Demings. That is blowout territory in Florida. If it's even close to the neighborhood of what's going to happen November 8th. Seven or eight point margins. Whoa. No wonder they're terrified politically of this person. And DeSantis has put his nose to the grindstone. He's stepped away from the hardcore politics. And he's been a leader, an apolitical leader. I think it's a good look for him. It reflects well on him. He's modulated his tone. He's changed his priorities as appropriate. But the critics, they cannot change their stripes. They're like one note. And if that's the battle, he's going to win. And he deserves to. The Guy Benson Show just getting started. It's October. It is like the thick of the fight now in this election season. And we are broadcasting all week from the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Stay tuned. You're listening to Guy Benson. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Fox News alert. President Biden is in Puerto Rico, and he's speaking right now about hurricane relief. We are monitoring what he's having to say. We won't dip in live, but just giving you a heads up, that is happening at this hour. Meanwhile, to dig back into the hardcore politics as we are into the month of October, and we'll probably ask Victor Davis Hanson about this coming up in the next segment, I just want to highlight some new numbers from Gallup today. National poll, they haven't done the head-to-head Republican versus Democrat generic ballot, but they've asked issues. And I think this paints a pretty rosy picture for the, uh, for the Republican Party. Overall, on favorability rating, do you have a favorable opinion of? The Republicans have a five-point advantage over the Democrats, which is kind of like a proxy, perhaps, for the generic ballot. Democrats are in the 30s. On favorability, Republicans now in the low to mid 40s, not exactly impressive, but they've got a five point edge there on keeping the country safe, which I think you could look at in terms of terrorism, national security, maybe people think about crime and immigration, just safety. Republicans are up 20 points on the Democrats and on prosperity, the economy. You'd imagine inflation, Republicans up 10, the highest number ever for the party, a tie at 51 percent versus 41% for the Democrats. That must bode well, I would say, for the GOP. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. From Stanford University this whole week and the Hoover Institution, it's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Thank you for listening. Podcast always free on demand. And with us now is Victor Davis Hanson. 
He is the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. His focus is classics and military history. He's also a best-selling author. His most recent book is The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. And, Victor, it is great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me, Guy. I would like to start with a sort of 50,000-foot question. You have forgotten more about history than most of us have ever learned, myself included. It's hard to write a first draft of history and to put things into perspective when they're so immediate. But I'm going to challenge you to try. Thus far, almost two years into this administration and the Joe Biden presidency, how does it stack up? What is your assessment of this presidency, historically speaking, roughly halfway through perhaps his only term or perhaps his first term? Well, I look at what they say they've done, and it's they measure that they would answer that question in doing something. But what is that something? And I, I look at it differently. What are the results or the lack of results? So we're about in, as you say, we're two and a half years, and we're looking at exactly what happened. So we have a border where people suggested three million people crossed. And when you have Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and some other Democrats saying it's got to be closed, you can see that uh, we're building a consensus that this has been a disaster. And then we have, I just filled up today, so I'm a little bit upset, $7.02 for diesel fuel in California. Part of that is attributable maybe 30% to the world shortages. But when you're coming out of a COVID lockdown and you have natural demand, that is not the time to shut down Anwar, cancel Keystone, and be the first president in modern history to have issued the fewest leases for gas and oil. And that's what he did. And so that create and then to Hector and to Jawbone financial and pensions institutions not to finance uh, fracking and horizontal billing. That was a perfect storm that that was a self-created crisis. And then when we look at inflation, the same thing, the same scenario was true. We were coming back in an area where we Trump had almost inflated the economy too much, I think. But we had printed about two trillion dollars during the covid crisis. And there was a natural demand peaking. And what did we do? We went, this is debatable, somewhere between two and a half and three and a half trillion dollars. And we created, at a time of supply shortage, a self created eight to nine percent inflation. And now we have two quarters because of energy prices, most likely, but also people dropped out of the workforce. People had long COVID, people were afraid of COVID. We have one of the lowest non-participation rates. So all of that together explains that we're into two consecutive quarters of negative growth. So we have, we're back to 1980s stagflation. Afghanistan, it's debatable who did, wanted to do what, but I think it's fair to say Trump wanted to get out but leave a residual force at, at um, Baglam Air Force Base. We put $300 million into it. We put a billion dollars in the embassy. It's disputable again whether it was 10 billion or 50 billion in equipment we left. But we destroyed U.S. deterrence for the near future by the way that we got out of Afghanistan. It was a complete and utter disaster. So when you look at all of this stuff, I think historians are going to ask 
was this inevitable? Was there a war? There was a plague? Was there a war? Was there a natural catastrophe? Was there a Katrina-like situation? Was it Iraq? And the answer is that for the most part, they were self-created. They were ideologically driven by ideologues who felt that borders were ossified concepts or that we were now had a golden moment to force a more rapid transition to alternative energy or that maybe inflation wasn't all that bad. It gets people, spreads the wealth around. Or we had no business in Afghanistan or maybe it was incompetence that we wanted to coincide uh, the departure with the 20th anniversary of 9-11, whatever the reason. But the theme will be that this president inherited a situation on the border, currency-wise, economic-wise, energy-wise, crime-wise, we haven't talked about crime, that was stable. And it didn't have to be this way. It was ideologically driven. And then his own person, because of his cognitive challenge, were forced multipliers of that. And I don't think if you ask anybody across the political spectrum, they can tell you who's in charge. We're sort of, sort of a Woodrow Wilson last year of his office where who's in charge of the country. But I don't think that Joe Biden sits down every day and says, this is what we're going to do on the border. This is what we're going to do on energy. I think he's he's surrounded by progressive activists and ideologues, and he listens to the last person he talks to. Victor Davis Hanson, our guest, and we played a soundbite a few times last week of this president's former spokeswoman, Jen Psaki. She went on Meet the Press two Sundays ago now, and she said, if this midterm election coming up in November is a referendum on the president and on the party in power, we will lose, speaking of the Democrats. And I know that there's one theory of the case that maybe this year is a little bit different and it won't be a pure referendum on the president or the ruling party. They do have full control of Washington, D.C. for various factors. It looks like the fundamentals of the race are shifting back, though, in that direction, or the fundamentals maybe never changed with the the numbers and, and the polls starting to shift back in that direction. I just wonder, as you look at sort of the constellation that you just described of events and outcomes and governing results. I just, in the last segment before you joined us, ran through a new Gallup poll that has the Republicans up five on favorability, up 20 on safety and security, up 10 tied for their highest watermark ever on the economy and prosperity. I mean, you look at those numbers and you would think that we are in store for a pretty significant red wave in November, but there's a lot of people wondering if that's actually going to materialize. How do you see it? Well, I see it as a, as a, uh, a, a very dramatic correction, a red wave, so to speak. And if you go back and look at the post-Labor Day media buzz, say, in 1994 or 2010, it's quite similar. There was this idea that the Ginrich uh, contract with America was a farce. It wouldn't go anywhere there were people talking about that the Tea Party had sort of expired, that they were too reckless, that they were too nationalistic, and people were going to come to their senses. This was all media-fed, I think, designed to discourage funding and voter turnout. Mm. So I, uh, I, if you look at what their strategy there being the Biden camp, it's, it's basically twofold. That is, keep the narrative off of the issues that we just talked about and have a series of psychodramas, each one replacing the last. So the January 6th insurrection, 
when that sort of tires out, you go to the Trump raid. When that tires, you go to the Phantom, the opera, semi-fascist, whole period of calling half the country fascist. And then we're back to, I think, January 6th, and then Roe versus Wade. And, they, and I think DeSantis showed people that if you have a dramatic intervention in that series, you can very quickly turn things back to what people worry about. And you're right that when you look at what people poll, it is crime, it is the economy, it is the energy, it is the border. And even Roe versus Wade, while it's a hot-button wedge issue, it's not one of the top four or five. It's down there with climate change. It's, it's very important for fundraising on the left, but not for necessarily reaching the Hispanic population. Um, or uh, as a wedge issue with, you know, union people, or it's not going to it's not going to get people's mind off expensive fuel, or they can't afford their electric bill, or uh, they can't walk into downtown Los Angeles. So, I I, I think they're ahead. They have a rendezvous with a with a big correction. I don't know if it's going to. I don't believe it's going to be ten or fifteen seats. I think it's more. It's going to be somewhere between thirty and fifty. And I think they're going to lose the Senate. Maybe there'll be a two to five person, the five senator majority for the Republicans. But, uh, I don't see anything from now what I'm trying to say until the election that's going to get better. I don't think there's going to be a, you know, a third quarter GDP report that says everything picked up or gas prices that he takes credit for for going down 30 cents have gone back up 30 cents. I don't see them gas getting better. I really don't. And, or, uh, or inflation just generally, be... right? And they sort of – it'll tick no, up or I tick don't... down, and he'll try to claim credit, and then he'll blame someone else when it doesn't go well, and sort of we're stuck in this rut, and he's the president and his party's in charge. So I tend to agree that we're headed for something of a red year. I'm not sure if I would predict a gain of five seats for the Republicans in the Senate, but, I mean, who knows? I mean, especially if some of these – numbers that are trending in that direction bear out there could be some real surprises november the 8th we'll find out victor i do want to ask you because you are a student of history particularly military history i have to pick your brain a little bit about russia and ukraine it seems like the russians are really getting rather desperate at least in some of their rhetoric they've suffered huge humiliating setbacks on the battlefield they continue to do that their public sort of posturing, especially for the domestic audience, really bears, at least in my view, very little resemblance to what's actually happening on the ground in Ukraine with this debacle of an invasion. What do you see from Putin? Are you concerned about the tactical nuclear weapons threat that's sort of once again back out there in the bloodstream? People are talking about it. And where do you see this conflict going? Well, I wrote about that today. I don't know how it ends because, like most Americans, I want the Ukrainians to win and to expel people that entered their soil. But the problem is that all of these agendas of the EU, of NATO, of the Ukrainians, of the United States, of Russia, they're not all compatible. And I don't know who gives what and when and where because – if we say that we're going to arm and give financial support, and the economy's in ruins in, in Ukraine, and 7 million people have left, but we're going to give them the wherewithal to push every single Russian out of 2014 uh, Ukraine prior to the Russian first assault, okay, and then 
what is necessary to achieve that goal. I think they're going to continue to assassinate Russian generals with U.S. intelligence. They're conducting raids in Mother Russia. They are going to have to target more of the Black Sea fleet. And they, when Putin, with his pathetic propaganda that these borderlands are now Russia, you can see what he's doing. He's going to t- tell the Russians that maybe or maybe not it was necessary to go after Kiev. But now it's a Mother Russia situation. That Forget what happened. Just like Stalin did in 41. He said, forget about the non-aggression pact that we invaded Poland and we supplied the Nazis. It's now they want to destroy Mother Russia, and people rally to that. So if the Russian people think that the Ukrainians with Western weapons are now attacking oil fields or supply depots or sinking more ships, they feel that they don't care what happened before. And that's what he's trying to do. I don't know if he's going to be able to pull it off. As far as the weapon, we know what he's doing because we don't quite know what you would do with a nuclear weapon. Do you let it off out in the middle of nowhere? Do you hit a major city and kill half a million people? Do you knock out a power plant? Where does the radioactive waste go, et cetera, et cetera? But you can't be sure that he's completely bluffing. We know what he wants to do. He wants to decouple the supply chain from Ukraine, and he thinks he's done it now with you. I think he has with the Europeans. I think when we get into three or four months from now, they will not, they're not, they're going to be like Germany is today, talk very tough, but send very little aid. And we're going to be the only one that sends aid. And we'll see what happens. But what I don't quite understand are all of the people in the West will say, yes, Zelensky's a hero. We agree with that. Yes, the Ukrainians are brave and they're a model of what NATO should be. Yes, but they're not NATO members. And to get every Russian out of their country, they're going to need a lot more weapons and a lot better weapons even than they have, and they're going to need a lot more money. They have, you know, one-fourth the population of Russia. They have one-tenth the GDP. They have one-thirtieth of the territory. And so I I guess what I'm saying is even David Petraeus, who was so assured the other day on, on his assertions that we've got to give them everything and this is a bluff, and if they dare let off a nuclear weapon, then we're going to destroy all the Russians with conventional weapons. And then, you know, then the point, then what? Because we're in new territory. We have never been this close to being in a war with Russia throughout throughout the Cold War since 1945 into World War II. We've never been this close. And we've had situations similar to this, the 1956 Hungarian Revolution. They killed over 1,500 Hungarians. And they went into Budapest with tanks, and we decided, Ike said, you know what, we're not going to go in there because if we don't know what they'll do. And so I, I think everybody needs to take a deep breath and follow the train of thought. Is how do you, Where do you want to be in a year from now? How do you get there? But just to say that he's bluffing, and we know why he's bluffing, and even if he is going to use them, then we're going to retaliate. The problem with it is that if you look at not on GDP, not on population, not on economic innovation, not on any cultural data point, but just the number of nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. it's, it's about even. In fact, they have more than we do. And so for all these commentators to say, oh, well, you know, his nuclear arsenal is old, it's obsolete, they can't do anything, that's not true. And so I, I think we've got to be very careful. We yeah, can't even that, talk about 
So people are so sensitive. They say, well, you're a pro-Putin if you, if you worry about how this ends. And he does seem a little bit cornered, uh, in, and he's done this to himself, and he's kind of got this flop sweat, and he's got the domestic audience, the population, which I think is maybe lukewarm at best on what's happening, people leaving when the mobilization was announced, and he's got the crisis among his elites, the Politburo, and, and some of those people as well. So when you've got uh, this animal who's extremely worried about his own grip on power potentially and his legacy and all this stuff, it's, it's hard to predict what someone in that position might do. So I think taking a deep breath uh, is, is probably some pretty good advice here from Victor Davis Hansen, who's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, where we're broadcasting from this whole week, also a best-selling author, historian. Victor, great to have you here. Thank you so much for your insights. Thank you for having me, Guy. You bet. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, we told you earlier in the hour that President Biden is in Puerto Rico talking about hurricane relief. He just said, quote, I was sort of raised in the Puerto Rican community at home politically. Can't wait for the explanation on that one from the White House. Maybe it's just because Puerto Rico is top of mind for him. So he was raised Puerto Rican or something. Always a new adventure. In the last segment, we were talking with Dr. Hansen. He brought up immigration and the border a few times. Our colleague Bill Malugin reporting over the weekend, we'll have more on this tomorrow, that since Joe Biden took office, we are now at 989,000 known gotaways at least, with nearly 600,000 this year alone. The border is secure, they say. The numbers tell a very different story. Another hour coming up. Molly Hemingway is here when we come back. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for joining GuyBensonShow.com, podcast always free. And we are coming to you live from the Hoover Institution at Stanford in Palo Alto, California, all week long in just a fantastic lineup of guests. Today through Friday, we're excited about it. Fox News alert as we enter our middle hour. The Dow closing up today. The roller coaster ride continues. Dow gaining 764 points, ending at 29,490. Joining us now is Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief of The Federalist, Fox News contributor, co-author of Justice on Trial, her own best-selling solo book, Rigged, also available now, at MZ Hemingway on Twitter. Molly, great to have you here, as always. Great to be here with you. Wish I were actually in California with you, but great to be here. (laughs) We should maybe try to coordinate that next time. We could do like a joint fellowship, Benson and Hemingway. I think that'd be a hit. I'm just putting it out there into the universe. We can yeah. see if we can like, manifest it for 2023. <laughs> Molly, right before the top of the hour break, I referenced something that I saw coming across on social media. And we actually have a brand new radio affiliate starting this week, joining the Guy Benson Show family. It's WUSX in Delaware. President Biden spends a lot of time up there. He is from Delaware. And yet, very bizarrely, moments ago in Puerto Rico, where he's talking about hurricane relief, He had this to say, it's just sort of a bit of a head-scratcher, cut 34. And so I uh, 
I uh, was sort of raised uh, in the Puerto Rican community at home politically. Um, Molly, I, I think between that... the folks in Pennsylvania and Delaware, I, I don't know what he could possibly be talking about. And I'm very I said this and I say this only partially with snark. I look forward to the explanation on this one from Karine Jean-Pierre, because that could be an all timer. Yeah, it's a new one. It's a new thing we've heard, and you, yet we've had so many Biden anecdotes where you know, it goes back for him for decades. They're just getting less nuanced maybe now, where he tries to show some linkage to some group of people. I mean, most famously, you might remember when he ran for president in the 80s, and he completely adopted the biography of Neil Kinnock, the <laughs> right. member of the House of Lords from the United Kingdom, and he stole his speeches, and he accepted his biography as his own. Uh, but he always has these things where he likes to be Forrest Gump-style involved in <laughs> right, things. In everything. No. But this one's new. I don't think I've heard him say this one, or maybe I missed it before. Maybe Corn Pop was uh, Puerto Present. Rican. We don't know. You know? I mean, he's going to say, you know, uh, I remember my, my pop. He told me when I was, he said, now, Joey, listen here. You're Latinx. Don't you forget it. Right? Like, that'll be, <laughs> that'll be, the, new, that'll be the new story here. And, like, we're laughing, but it's, it's not that important. It's bizarre. Well, and, you know, it's common for a lot of politicians to exaggerate their biography or, you know, again, try to draw connections. He's very, he's always been bad about it. It's, it's why he wasn't able to run for president in the 80s. And now as he's declining, it's just more awkward and mm. more absurd and he's sort of forgetting. But you, you mentioned what Kareem Jean-Pierre would say about it. And that's also disconcerting because when he clearly forgot that Jackie Walorski had died last week when he was trying to make mention of her, he had completely forgotten that he'd ordered the flags at half mass, that he'd made public declarations about her death, you know, asked where she was and why she wasn't around or where she, whether she was going to be around. And Kareem Jean-Pierre said, uh, he did that because she was at the top of his mind. Mm -hmm. And anyone can understand that particularly someone of that age might forget someone's death. But that response was actually pretty horrifying. From oh, her. And as I mentioned in the last hour, perhaps the explanation will be that Puerto Rico is top of mind. And so he's Puerto Rican or something. Uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. I, I look forward to it. Molly, I actually saw you tweet about this after I made the plan to open the show today. So an hour ago, my opening monologue was about what they are trying and I think really failing to do down in Florida to Ron DeSantis with Hurricane Ian. I was waiting. I was waiting for them to try to go Katrina on this thing. And it's very thin gruel. He's been very effective in his response, both on substance, but also rhetorically reacting to the questions about this, like, you know, why didn't you do this sooner or that? But it was going to happen that at least some people were going to try to turn the hurricane into a scandal for him. And so now they've done it. It's, it's very ham-fisted, as is so often the case. Then I saw your tweet that you, I guess, had talked to your students at Hillsdale saying the same thing, just you wait, and here it's arrived. They are nothing if not predictable. Yeah, sadly predictable. And I had told my students that I would anticipate that they would try to Katrina Ron DeSantis, a reference to how the media blamed George W. Bush for the local and state government failures during Hurricane Katrina, mm -hmm. uh, which was so awful and devastating to New Orleans and surrounding areas. But 
you know, they're clearly trying. I saw a CNN reporter, you know, kind of harassing DeSantis about an evacuation order for a county where the hurricane kind of had a surprise landfall different than what people had predicted. And, um, you know, most, uh, you know, just trying to make trying to make a problem here. It's not working because, by and large, the state is working pretty well. Florida is working well. It's obviously a horrific catastrophe, but people are doing what they can. There are people who are you know, frustrated, upset, without ho- without homes and things like that. But people are working together. I was more upset by this Politico thing. Did you see the Politico story that said Ron DeSantis is critical of Joe Biden, but now he wants access to Joe Biden's wallet? Yeah, this was a weird and, one, too. Yeah, I was horrified by that. Like, you can't be critical of the politics of the president because it's his wallet. And by his wallet, they mean Federal our money, taxpayer dollars, like yeah, your our money. money, my money, that that therefore he has to be nice and a supplicant to Biden. I don't remember that being an argument during the previous administration. No. That had to be, you know, a supplicant to Trump on everything or else you might get your his wallet turned off. Uh, but it was a very, very weird posture. for. Yeah, because it's not a president's wallet. It's taxpayer money. It's public funds. And the standard, as you just sort of noted here, is. Were there ever stories in Politico or elsewhere saying, oh, Andrew Cuomo, Gavin Newsom, these people criticize Trump all the time, and yet they're taking COVID relief money from Trump, these hypocrites? It's just a very, very strange thing. And, like, who pitches these stories? And then who says, oh, yeah, that's a good one. Now we've really got him. It's just – it feels familiar in some way but even dumber than usual. Well, there's also the story where they were saying Ron DeSantis voted against a pork package that was disguised as hurricane relief after Sandy. So he can't ask for funds for this hurricane, Mm. like as if that would show hypocrisy if you opposed a pork bill that was just like pocket, you know, that was like characterized as a hurricane relief bill. And I mean, presumably conservatives would also be upset if that happened with the Florida hurricane relief that might be coming their way yeah actually you know target it make it substantive address the problem that's the whole point and by the way just coming back i just thought of this on the katrina thing isn't it interesting and i if only there were an explanation molly hemingway that they are trying to katrina governor ron DeSantis on hurricane ian and they just don't have the substance to do it but they're trying when they katrina President George W. Bush, ignoring Governor Blanco, ignoring Mayor Nagin. It was about President Bush on that hurricane, but it's Governor DeSantis, not a sitting president, that they're trying to Katrina this time. You know, I is there any is there any way you can explain this, Molly? I'm trying to figure out what the so well, confusing. Yeah, what it's would a riddle. Make them do that. It's a I mean, riddle. Uh, yeah, so clearly whoever has the Republican uh, affiliation is the one that's to blame. But, you uh-huh. know, in the in the Katrina example, there really were state and local failures, particularly local failures oh, big that, ones. Were, that should have been criticized. And by making it a political issue, you know, and there might be local issues in play in Florida for all we know, you know, at some point or uh, there might be state issues, there might be national issues. But when you rush to make everything political, it makes it hard to trust people later about their reporting. Molly, I do want to play a soundbite for you, and I'm going to preface it just speaking for myself here. I am not a great fan of Kerry Lake, who's the Republican nominee for governor out in Arizona. I don't like the 
sort of election denial stuff that she especially focused on in the primary. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be out here as a big Carrie Lake person. I will say she presents awfully well. She's very smooth. She's quick. And despite some of my serious issues that I have with her, I've seen some of her back and forth exchanges with reporters. She, of course, was a longtime news anchor. And she's done rather well in them. And the most recent one that's getting some attention on the right, she was asked a hostile question about abortion because almost all journalists are pro-choice to pro-abortion, somewhere on that spectrum. And she began the answer by talking about being pro-life and why she's pro-life and getting women help and resources available and adoption and all this stuff. And then she flipped the script on this and finally did what I've been basically begging Republicans to do every time they're asked about this in Cut 26. Listen. And I'm, I'm happy to get back to you on this. When you find out where Katie Hobbs stands, because let me tell you where she stands. She supports abortion right up until birth Thank and after you. birth. That's right. She supports if a baby survives a botched abortion, that that baby die on a cold metal tray. True. And none of you ever try to get her to talk about her stance. So get back to me after you do. Thank and you. tell her. And tell her that uh, I want to debate this topic on October 12th, but she really needs to show up for that debate. Because she's ducking debates. She's an absolute radical on this issue. And Carrie Lake took the question and forced the issue of where the Democrat stands on this, which is way out of step with the people of Arizona. That right there, Molly, to me, seems like it should be kind of a textbook answer across the country for a lot of these Republicans. It was really well done. I have to say really quickly, and I don't know how much this applies to Carrie Lake, that having problems with how elections were administered doesn't mean you deny that elections took place. It just means you have problems with yeah, she, you know, whether it's she goes takeover of beyond that, I, I don't in know my enough view. about her particulars. Okay, but I thought this was a great response. Even before the part that you clipped, she gave a really strong defense of protecting children and their mothers, unborn children and their mothers. So she didn't shy away from the question. She didn't try to move on to something else. She actually embraced that she is pro-life and wants uh, families to be supported, mothers and their children. And I liked that she began with that. Then she punches back with this. And it works because, of course, they never ask these questions. It also worked because she knew enough about her opponent's position to say something accurate about how extreme it is, you know, that she supports even uh, – she's so extreme on abortion that she even thinks that if children survive abortions, that they should be left to die. That is something that is very unpopular with the American people, even beyond, you know, whatever moral issues are in play. And so it was – Effective. I, I think Marco Rubio did something similar Rand yep. Paul, recently. Rand Paul did it in 2016. It works well, so any pro-life politician worth their salt should be thinking about that and making sure that they're you know, advocating for life and pointing out the extremism of their opponents if they want to take on the media yep. here. Take note and watch the tape. Uh, you don't have to love her to like that answer a lot. Molly Hemingway on The Guy Benson Show. Molly, always appreciate it. We'll step aside. Stay with us. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. I saw this story over the weekend from Portland, Oregon. Headline, ongoing vandalism discourages business owners in downtown Portland. And they quote one local business owner who says, in three months, I've had four windows smashed. I've had somebody try to rip off the front door of our gate off the hinges, and it's just been nonstop. And it's just example after example in Portland, Oregon of this. Meanwhile, from the same left-wing utopia, same city, 
A friend of mine sent me this story from public broadcasting out in Oregon about the disastrous test scores among kids in that state. Remember last week we mentioned that California has decided that they're going to punt the result of their standardized testing until after the election. What a mystery why they're doing that. It's going to be ugly. They don't want voters to think about it before the election. But in Oregon, we're getting some of that data. Listen to this. Talking about Portland in particular, quote, overall in English, 17% of black students, 29% of Latino students, 32% of Native American students are proficient across grades 3 through 8 and 11. So three different grade levels where they assess this. This compares to 67% of white students. There's just a huge achievement gap there. In math, the story says, the results are starker. Listen to this. On the math exams, this is grades 3, 8, and 11, Portland, Oregon. The data shows the following proficiency rates for students at the grade levels tested. 8% for black students, 8 13% for indigenous students, 21% for Latino students, 56% for white students. In the city of Portland, Oregon, less than one out of 10 black students across multiple grade levels is even at the proficiency level on math, 8%. Only about one out of five among Latinos, barely a majority of whites. The reason that I tell you both of these stories, the crime story out of Portland, which is no surprise, it's just dog bites man, an endless nightmare on that front there, and then this on the schools and the outcomes for kids, Oregon and Portland in particular, I'm not sure you can find any place in the country that is more left-wing. On COVID, they did the most left-wing stuff. They hated Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott and... Brian Kemp and all these horrible anti-science right-wingers doing terrible things like reopening and sending kids back to school, God forbid, with masks optional, they were safe as can be in Portland, Oregon, which actually, of course, wasn't safe, had nothing to do with the science, ignored the data. These are the results. This is what the adults have caused. This is what has been visited upon the children of Portland, Oregon arguably the most left-wing place in all of America. Portland is run by leftist equity obsessives. They justify everything through this prism of race and equity and justice and all the buzzwords. And look at what they've actually done to the children who live there. The equity is completely out of whack. You've got 17% of black students and 8% of black students, respectively, proficient in English and math. Abysmal. It's not because those kids are stupid or intrinsically unable to learn. It's because they are being failed by this system that claims to be all about racial justice. There is a tight governor's race in Oregon right now. The Republican in that race has a very slim lead. It's a three-way contest. If they are ever going to make any changes out there in that crazyville, 
This would be the moment maybe for a Republican to actually win. She seems very sensible. I've seen some of her sound bites. She's good. It's a very close race out in that state. Maybe the people of Oregon should just look around and say, do we want to keep doing more of the same with these exact kinds of people running the show? How's that working out? I think the numbers ought to speak for themselves. We talked about crime there for a second. Let's really turn to that issue in earnest next. Andy McCarthy is here when we come back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through the Monday edition of the Guy Benson Show. Appreciate your listenership. Thank you for being here, whether it's live as we air 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern or on the podcast, really growing by leaps and bounds. GuyBensonShow.com for all of the information. We are coming to you from Stanford University this whole week and the Hoover Institution. Very grateful for them and their hospitality to us. It's great to be back here. And it's also great to welcome back to the show Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, and author of multiple best-selling books. Andy, great to have you back. Guy, always a pleasure. I want to start by addressing something that we touched on a little bit last week, and I know that you are eager to respond. Larry Krasner is the left-wing, I would argue, effectively pro-criminal district attorney in the city of Philadelphia, and they've had a thousand people murdered in the last almost two years. They've hit a thousand carjackings in the last year. That's a record. And he was confronted in a local news interview about this record and about the crime in the city. And he basically said this is all a right wing lie. And really, it comes down to Trump and the Republicans who are at fault. Here's part of what he said. Cut 32. These states in the United States that have a rate of homicide that is 40 percent higher are MAGA states. They are Trump states. I'll say it again. The rate of homicide in Trump states, as compared to Biden states, take all 50 of them, is 40 percent higher. You know higher. Republicans say the opposite. It's all the blue Republicans cities. Republicans lie. The... I mean, let's just get down to it. Republicans lie. That is what they do. Eight of not the ten cities without lie. not. Well, OK, that's right. Not all of them do, but the MAGA ones do. Eight out of ten of the most violent cities are Trump cities. Like, we got to get real about this. Facts matter. Facts matter, Andy. This is about Trump cities, and anyone who tells you otherwise is lying. What do you make of this? Well, you know, first of all, Guy, his, the, his thing to worry about is Philadelphia, which is the worst crime city in America by a number of different statistics, some of which you've just uh, identified. But, but I really think that this whole discussion is kind of a, a false premise. I mean, why talk about uh, states? Why not talk about violent countries? You know, depending on what level of generality you want to announce or discuss this at, you could make the numbers do anything. What I would suggest to people, and great work has been done on this by Rafael Mangual from the, uh, from the Manhattan Institute, but what he points out is that uh, in the United States, We shouldn't even be talking about cities because the crime is committed in about 2% of the districts. Like the vast amount of the crime is in small geographical areas that are easily identified 
mostly within urban areas. So it's absurd to talk about this. It's almost absurd to talk about it in terms of uh, cities broadly. Uh, crime is actually, a, if you do a granular analysis of it, most of the crime is being committed in small identifiable hubs within cities. And the fact of the matter is that in about 60% of counties throughout the United States, there's, there is no murder at all. They go through an entire year without it. Uh, uh, many, many counties uh, have one or fewer, you know. Um, but so, you know, he needs to worry about the place that he's in charge of, which since he became in charge of it, has record crime. And the fact that you could say, um, you know, the crime is uh, higher in particular states or particular regions is kind of beside the point. He's just playing games with statistics, and he's even lying about the statistics he's playing games with. Yeah, I mean, so that's the second part of what you just said there, I think, is what's extra important. I think, yes, fundamental reality check. Larry Krasner, your job is to prosecute crime in the city of Philadelphia, and crime has exploded in the city of Philadelphia under your failing policies. And his deflection is they're not failing, they're working. Anyone who says otherwise is a liar. These Republicans just lie. And really, it's the MAGA Trump cities where all this crime is happening. Just a whole blizzard of deflection and misdirection that I think, yes, tries to evade responsibility over the jurisdiction that he's in charge of. That's, I think, a fundamental elementary point. But then also the idea that this crime is really just rampant in Trump cities is ludicrous. These cities were not won by Donald Trump. These are small areas within blue cities overwhelmingly that lopsidedly, not even close, are controlled by Democratic political operations. That is just a fact. But if some of the cities, and you can look at which particular crime rate you're talking about and the cities and states change, but if some of the cities happen to be located in states that were won statewide by Donald Trump, but the locality, the jurisdiction is run by Democrats, it is preposterous to pretend that a deep blue city is somehow a Trump city because it might be located in Texas or something. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Look, guys, there's many delightful places in Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, Pennsylvania has a high murder rate. Uh, na nationwide because of Larry Krasner City. I mean, there's other hubs in the in the in the state of Pennsylvania as well. But you know, the relevance of uh, you know, pick whatever town in Pennsylvania, which probably hasn't seen a murder in you know a decade. The fact that it could be lopped into a into a high statistic because of it, it uh, because Larry Krasner City happens to be in Pennsylvania is kind of besides the point. It doesn't advance our argument anywhere or, or in any way. What I think would advance the argument is to focus on who the victims of the crimes are. Mm -hmm. you know, first of all, we know that if, the, if it was like MAGA elements that were committing these homicides, that would be the biggest story in the United States. It's not a story because it's not a story. Uh, but what should be a story is the fact that, for example, in New York City, 95% of murder victims are black or Hispanic, which do not make up 95% of the population of New York. In Chicago, where the black population is 29%, 80% of homicide victims are black. 
So by doing this kind of misdirection that Krasner is doing, we're missing the important point here, which is the communities that need more aggressive policing are not getting it because they're doing a progressive fairy tale about violent crime. And the people who are getting hurt by it are the people in the very communities that they pretend to be champions. Yeah, that's right. And the thing is, Andy, it wasn't a bunch of Republicans who ousted Chesa Boudin from San Francisco down the road from where we're doing the show this week. That was liberals and progressives who finally had enough and said, this isn't working. And I think there was another opportunity to do a similar thing down in Los Angeles. They didn't quite get enough valid signatures for that, but a very unpopular DA down there. The American people don't buy any of this spin. I know that Gavin Newsom, the governor out here in California, is also very invested in this. Oh, the real violent crime states are the red MAGA states, and the Republicans are just blaming it on us. People understand who runs the cities, which party has had a stranglehold on most American large cities now for decades on end. And when you look at the polling, which party will handle crime better, Republicans often have a double-digit lead on that question because I think deep down the American people understand that Republicans who are deeply flawed and hypocritical in any number of ways ultimately actually do stand for law and order and being tougher on crime, whereas the Democrats are the party that was sort of defending or ignoring violent rioting and looting, for example, a couple summers ago and want to go soft on crime with all these so-called progressive policies and the revolving door and bail reform and all this stuff. Policies matter. The Democrats have one approach. The Republicans have another approach. They can dress this up with their cherry-picked, completely misleading stats all they want. People aren't buying it because intuitively they understand it's not true. Yeah, Guy, I think what you've hit on is the very reason why Krasner thinks he has to have a story on this. If what you said was not so, if this was not resonating with people who absolutely know what time it is as far as, as, far as who stands where on crime, they would just deflect or they wouldn't comment at all. They feel like they have to have a story, even right. a story that's completely dishonest, because this is an issue that's important to people. You know, there's a lot of things out there that are, objectively speaking, very important issues. We talk about them all the time. You know, Iran, Ukraine, uh, you, you name it. But when we're talking about law and order, when we're talking about street crime, you're talking about, like, where people live and what their day-to-day existence is. And that's not something that people treat like an abstraction. That's yep. like real life to people. So and the even idea- if they're living in the burbs or in the exurbs, they're still watching their late local news. They're seeing what's happening in the neighboring close major city, metro area, and saying this seems to be getting worse. They feel it. They understand what's happening in their bones, and they get who is disproportionately responsible for it which is why I think you have Newsom giving similar interviews to Krasner out there yelling about how it's this big misinformation machine and the Republicans are just so good at dominating the narrative and it's based completely on lies. Uh, It just – it reeks of desperation because they understand who's at fault and why it's bad for them politically. Andy, you mentioned New York City a moment ago. I love New York City. You love New York City. It has been very sad to see what's been happening in New York City in the last couple of years. I was hopeful that it would get better under Eric Adams. Surely he is not worse than Bill de Blasio. But in some ways, 
it's still very bad in New York. There's a daily news story today headline, violent, unprovoked attacks have New Yorkers on edge. They quote someone, there is something profoundly wrong. There's a tourist who was slashed and robbed in Times Square. Just we're seeing brazen attacks and murders in broad daylight around the city. And then Eric Adams was giving a press conference the other day. I don't know if you heard this, but he was boasting about the brand of New York and New York City and decided to take a gratuitous shot at Kansas for some reason, cut 30. We have a brand. New York has a brand. And when people see it, it means something. You know, when we go there, it's not. A, Kansas doesn't have a brand. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, when you go there, you're, okay, you're from Kansas. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, you know what? <laughs> but New York has a brand. All right, so they're laughing it up about Kansas. Meanwhile, New Yorkers are witnessing what's happening on the streets of that city, and I just don't really know if it's ever a good look for a mayor of a big city to talk that way about a place like Kansas, period. But especially with the juxtaposition in terms of what's happening in those respective places, it just seems extra tone-deaf and unseemly. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, look, New York does have a brand, but – most of us who um, will always think of ourselves as New Yorkers, like I was born and, and raised in the Bronx, I will never live in New York again. So I wear my, you know, my New York roots, uh, and I'm, I'm uh, happy about them, uh, but that doesn't mean I'd ever go back and live in Eric Adams City again. And, you know, I, I'd be sympathetic to Adams' guy. Uh, yes, he ran on – you know, unrealistically, I think being able to, uh, you know, sort of snap his fingers and crime was going to the crime situation was going to get better. It obviously hasn't gotten better. I agree with you. He's not worse than de Blasio, but he's not meaningfully. He hasn't been meaningfully better. I would cut him some slack because the mayor of New York has no control over the district attorneys. And I think where law enforcement gets policy gets made is whether the district attorneys will take the cases. So the mayor has control over who the chief of police is in New York. But if the district attorneys won't prosecute the cases, then it's totally yep. demoralizing. Which is what the, we're seeing right, from Bragg. And that's and then, exactly what we're seeing. And the bail reform law, which comes from Albany, has been a complete nightmare. And Governor Hochul won't touch it, won't talk about it, won't debate her Republican opponent in the upcoming election. So it's not all on him, obviously. It's an amalgam of factors here, but the results are what they are. And it's just, it's sad to hear someone like you, born and bred in New York City, saying, you know, you'd never move back there. I think right now, I get it. Although I am sort of shocked that you were born in the Bronx and became a Mets fan, Andy. And, (laughs) and, And how's that going for you this week? Not to Pour salt in the wound. I didn't think I'd I'd come on and you twist the knife in. Well, we have our biggest affiliates in Atlanta, Andy. So we have to pander a little bit. The Braves Braves are just, uh, you know, I wish I could be really, really angry at my team, for especially the guys who showed up small in the biggest games of the year. But that's a great team. I mean, they won the World Series for a reason. But my hat's off to them. They... You know, I mean, the pace, they, it's not like the Mets played terrible the last half of the year, but the pace they kept has just been amazing. Yeah, and, and I'll just say this. 
season's not over. These Mets fans, my friends who are Mets fans, you see them out there. It's like they're talking about the season like it is finished. Like there's no more games. It's all been a failure. You, you never know what can happen in the postseason. The Mets have a lot of talent on that roster as well. So we'll be watching for sure. Andy McCarthy, we've got to leave it there. Fox News contributor, longtime federal prosecutor. You can read many of his books, multiple bestsellers. Follow him on Twitter, at Andrew C. McCarthy. Andy, enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank, thanks so much, Guy. It's The Guy Benson Show, back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on the Guy Benson Show at the tail end of that interview with Andy McCarthy. I did mention Atlanta. will be down there in a couple of weeks, actually, later this month at our affiliate Extra. Looking forward to broadcasting from there. Very important governor's race, very important Senate race, of course, in that state. There's a development out of Georgia that actually made me laugh out loud. So on a serious note, a federal judge has handed a sweeping defeat to Stacey Abrams and her allies in a group called the Fair Fight Action Coalition. The idea being that it's not a fair fight in Georgia because of all the suppression and the Republican chicanery. That's her story. That's why she's denied that she lost the election in 2018 to Brian Kemp, wouldn't concede that race. Now she's trying to spin her way out of that like, oh, no, I, I accepted the result. No, she said exactly the opposite for a long time. That's how she became famous, a big celebrity on the left. So once... In Georgia, they passed the voting reforms that we talked about a lot here, and Stacey Abrams called them Jim Crow 2.0, and Joe Biden called them worse than Jim Crow, and Major League Baseball yanked the All-Star game, all based on lies, total lies, that have been repudiated by actual reality and voter turnout. Stacey Abrams and this group filed a lawsuit against that law, saying that it violated the Constitution and all sorts of other things. Well, a federal judge over the weekend ruled against her and this coalition on every single element of their suit. New York Times says, quote, U.S. District Court Judge Stephen Jones ruled against all the claims brought by fair fight action. He wrote, although Georgia's election system is not perfect, the challenged practices violate neither the Constitution nor the Voting Rights Act. By the way, this judge was nominated by Barack Obama. He's not some right-wing judge. Their case was that weak. They got completely crushed in court. And guess what Stacey Abrams did? Declaring it, quote, a hard-won victory for voters, even though she lost on every count. I guess that's what she does. You lose, and then you say that you won. Never change, Stacey. Let's see if you, quote-unquote, win again November 8th. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show here from the Hoover Institution today. Coming up next, don't go anywhere. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Broadcasting this week from Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, and the Hoover Institution. It's been a few years since we were here, COVID and all of that, but we're back. We are so delighted to be here and to have all of you with us. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, the podcast. We just had a monster month, by the way, in September on the podcast. Thank you so much. Huge growth. 
We are grateful. The podcast, if you can't catch us live, is available on demand for free every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, send us a follow on social media. And a reminder, this hour is sponsored by, as always, our friends at The Finish Long Drink, which is terrific. Check it out. 21 plus only, of course. Always drink responsibly. They're expanding for good reason. TheLongDrink.com. Well, here with me in studio at the Hoover Institution is our next guest. Kevin Hassett is a distinguished visiting fellow here at this institution. He recently served as the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. Prior to his White House service, Mr. Hassett was an economist at the American Enterprise Institute. He's taught at NYU. He's taught at Columbia. He's been a consultant to the U.S. Treasury Department. He's done a lot, and obviously his expertise is on economics. And, Kevin, it is so good to see you. Oh, it's great to be here, except for the fact you've got a Yankee cap on, but I guess I'll just have to get used to that. Wow. <laughs> is this a bitter Red Sox fan that I am? I, I'm uh, a last-place Red Sox fan well, right now. Yeah. I won't rub it in too much. And well, i got a feeling you will. <laughs> I, I, if, if we had more time, I could just go chapter and verse, but... But let's talk about something, well, I would say more cheerful than the Boston Red Sox season, but not really, which is the U.S. economy. This is your wheelhouse. This is your area of expertise. I just want to start with a big-picture question because the number one issue poll after poll reveals in the minds of Americans is inflation. And we got some really bad numbers a few weeks ago. There was another tough number last week that didn't bode well. October's coming up here. Maybe – Near to medium term, what is your read on inflation and just the economy writ large? Because people, I think, are desperate for relief. They keep hoping, especially at the White House, politically, that we've turned a corner. And then we come around that corner and it's more pain. Right. Well, in, inflation is really painful for folks. And a real simple way to you know, describe what's going on in the lives of the average American is just this, that in order to buy the same stuff you bought a year ago, you have to spend right now, the average American, $460 more a month. That's how much prices have gone up. And so if your salary didn't go up by $460 a month, which, you know, who's did, uh, then you're worse off. You can't buy the same amount of stuff that you bought last year. And, you know, if you have, uh, you know, less spending, then that means that GDP declines and you're looking at a recession. It's we've had two negative quarters in a row. Uh, I think the third quarter probably is looking like it's going to be a little bit positive. But frankly, uh, people don't have the money they need to buy what they bought last year so that you should expect output and consumption to continue to decline. As that happens, it does put some downward pressure on prices. And all of a sudden, when businesses can't sell stuff, then they've got too much inventory and then they lower prices to get rid of it. And so you know, that's what the Fed's trying to do with higher interest rates is sort of knock the economy back. Where do we get there? Um, you know, I think it's going to be a good long time. Uh, generally, when inflation gets as high as it's been, which is really around 10 percent over the summer, uh, then it's you're looking at a number of years before you get it back down in the one or two percent range. Uh, you could get it there faster, but to get it there faster, you have to really like knock the economy on its heels. You got to wallop it like uh, happened in 1982 with like a full-blown recession at that point probably. well we're in a full-blown recession right now probably but this would but it's a mild one so far and uh, yeah you would need a, a, a decline in, in GDP that's that's massive if you wanted to get inflation under control right away we've heard from the current administration so many different stories about the inflation problem first it wasn't gonna happen let's spend 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 it's fine no one's worried about inflation was the quote from the president then inflation arrived but don't worry it's transitory it's not really a thing Then it took them the better part of a year to finally retire that word. And then they will tell us that, oh, we think it's peaked. We think we're making progress. 
We've passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Let's have a party. I mean, it's just been one thing after another, sort of like a comedy of errors. It seems to me that their credibility on this whole issue is just shot. Yeah, I mean, they, they absolutely have shot their credibility. And, and I'd have to say that it, in economics, we had sort of the equivalent of the mission accomplished uh, mm. uh, meeting that, that Bush had uh, over, over the Iraq war in the sense that they had the big party to celebrate the Inflation Reduction Act on the day when we got really, really bad inflation news and the market dropped, the Dow dropped a thousand points. And so it just shows how clueless they are. You know, if I were still working in the White House and I was CEA chair and they said, hey, we're going to have a big party to celebrate the Inflation Reduction Act, then I would say, well, let's not do it on the day when the inflation numbers come out. There's just too much risk, right? You could just get a bad break. And that's that's what happened to them. The fact is they've been in denial the whole time. And they're in denial, I think, not just because it's bad politically, but because they don't have a clue. And, and, and so they've been saying things that maybe they think are correct, but they're not. And so they came in saying, do you remember modern monetary theory? Mm-hmm. Modern monetary theory was that you could, print run, everything. you could just print everything, run the deficit as large as you want, and you're not going to create inflation. And then when we got inflation, then it was because of supply disruptions. Uh, and, and then, of course, uh, it, the inflation stayed. Uh, there really aren't supply disruptions anymore. Uh, and now, you know, I think they just don't know what to do. The Fed, thankfully, does understand how severe it is. And if you look at the Jackson Hole conference, uh, you know, Jay Powell, the Fed chair, made it clear that he's going to do what it takes, which means that he is going to wall up the economy uh, until unemployment skyrockets and inflation goes down. But the but they're not going to get any help from the White House. Kevin Hassett, my guest, he's a visiting fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He served as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. He's clearly not there anymore or else things might be a little different right now but there's a new team in charge in the biden white house and you were just referencing some of their excuse making and it's always been not a problem then a problem that won't last long and then okay it is a problem but it's not our fault and i'm willing to cut them some slack and recognize the economic reality that not all of this is on them there are global trends and other factors beyond this president's control or any president's control that's absolutely true But I think what they want to then skirt around is the idea that they have any culpability for how bad the problem is. Even though we have some of the worst inflation in the Western world, policy also matters. The spending that they've done, trillions of dollars, and they just did more of it. I mean, they would argue that that isn't really a contributing factor. What's your response when you hear them talk like that? Right. Well, you know, it's it's simple economics that, uh, you know, what happens is that suppose you're just going to the farmer's market and you want to get some apples and a whole bunch of farmers show up and they all got apples, then they're going to have to start cutting the price uh, because they're going to be competing for your business. If you go and there's only one farmer, you know, selling apples and you want some apples, then there's not much supply. And so and so therefore uh, he could charge a high price. And so, uh, you know, basically, if you attack supply, uh, if supply goes down, then that can make prices higher. And if you feed demand, if demand goes up, then that can make prices higher. And what the Biden administration has done, and, and it's really like desperately awful economics, uh, is that they've attacked supply with higher taxes, higher regulation, and they've fed demand by mailing checks to people. Uh, and so that it's they like the pushed- perfect storm of wrong. It's the perfect storm of, of wrong. And, and the attacking of supply, you know, one, there's lots of different ways to measure it. But, but you know, the most uh, regulatory president in history prior to Joe Biden was Barack Obama. Uh, and so Barack Obama introduced all sorts of new regulations that especially harm small businesses because they can't afford, like, all the lawyers you need to comply to new regulations. So they got to, you know, figure it out on their own and hire outside firms and so on. Uh, Joe Biden has introduced new regulations at twice the rate of Obama. 
Uh, and uh, indeed, one of his first executive orders wow. was he made it so that a new regulation doesn't have to pass a cost-benefit test. It used to be that if you're going to have a new regulation, you had to at least fake it and sort of say, well, the benefits outweigh the cost. No, he, he, he actually, no kidding. Just do he it. just said, just, you got a new regulation, doesn't have to pass a cost-benefit test, just go ahead and do it. And so what's happened is that um, right now, small business sentiment is the worst we've seen since World War II. Uh, and the reason is, I think more than anything, it's a little bit of higher taxes, but mostly it's because the, you know, the the thousands and thousands of new regulations that the Biden people are writing. Like every agency can now put out new regulations without having to go through the Office of Management and Budget uh, approval process. And I, I read about this in my book, The Drift: Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. And, and and the way to think about it, and this is the way I. I envision what's going on right now is because of these new regulations basically the government is putting the economy in a vice and and so it's it's almost like the government is owning the capital the way it happens in an extreme socialist country but we are drifting really rapidly under biden towards socialism and the, the point is just this that if you start out with a capitalist economy and then um you start moving it in the socialist direction uh then in the capitalist economy you go to the store and there's there's the shelves are full uh, but as the socialists take over, what happens is that producers sort of give up. It's like, why should I do this? The socialists are taking all my profits. They're not, you know, it just doesn't make sense to operate anymore. And so the profit motive is, is sapped. It's sapped. And so then you go into the store and the shelves start to be empty because people aren't producing stuff because, you know, there's no point in it for them. And then the prices go up. And uh, when you go to the store at the beginning of socialism – and you see inflation and empty shelves. And, and you know, I, I do the grocery shopping of my family. I can tell you there are empty shelves at the grocery stores. And, and, and if you see that at the beginning of socialism, then what the socialists always do is they say, oh, it's a supply disruption. It's a supply disruption. Or they call it a failure of capitalism. They love or, that, too. Oh, yeah, and so therefore we need more government. But the point is just that it's not a supply disruption. It's a supply adjustment. Supply is adjusting permanently mm. downward. And that's what's going on right now. If, if, if you know, the Biden administration has a successful midterm election and they can continue these policies, then I don't think we have any idea what the bottom for the market or for the economy might be. Well, we'll find out on November 8th if that's possible. I think that they are unlikely to have a successful election. They've certainly earned an unsuccessful election for their party, in my view. Kevin Hassett, my guest, I want to turn to Trump versus Biden on economics next. He knows a lot about this, obviously. A view from the inside. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. With me here is Kevin Hassett. I do want to ask you about this because you were one of the top economic advisors, as I've mentioned, under President Trump. I feel like you guys had a pretty good track record. Then COVID hit and just blew up the whole world, basically, economically. But prior to that, U.S. economy really cooking with gas. I saw today or yesterday a social media post from President Biden, or really from his team, let's be honest. But it's the talking point that we've heard from them back to back. Number one, that they are doing record deficit cutting. Like, look at how good we are on deficits, unlike the crazy, reckless Republicans before us. And then the second part that they add to that is we're cutting the deficit unlike them. They balloon the deficit because they cut taxes for the rich and it was not paid for. Now, I know some of the nuances behind that, which really call into question the veracity of what they're trying to sell with that. But I'm sure for you it's especially frustrating because it's really inverting what's actually happened here and taking credit for something that they deserve no credit for. If you would just tackle those claims by President Biden. Sure. Uh, 
so so thinking back to COVID, and, and again, I had left the White House for a few months, and then the COVID crisis came, and President Trump asked me to come back, and I had an office in the West Wing, and I was pretty much in charge, uh, along with Secretary Mnuchin and Larry Kudlow, with developing a plan to save the economy, even though we were shutting it down. Uh, and you might recall that we had the biggest uh, negative quarter since the Great Depression, because you know Tony Fauci con- convinced the president to shut things down. I. I think that that what Fauci, you know, people forget, but what Fauci told the president was that COVID was going to be like the flu and that when the summer came and it was warm, nobody ever gets the flu, right? The the flu always happens in the winter. And so if we could just close the economy for a couple of months uh, and get to sort of late May, early June, then COVID would be gone. Uh, And so they shut the economy down. Uh, you know, in response to the advice of the medical professionals, and I'm not a medical professional, so I couldn't really disagree with them. But I could say, here, you know, you're going to really potentially throw us into a Great Depression if you keep it shut for more than a month or two. And then what we did, though, is we uh, estimated the amount of lost activity that we would have if we shut down for a month. And then I uh, went up. I was in the Senate Finance Committee room uh, meeting with Democrats, and we basically said, we don't know what this COVID thing is going to be like, but what we need to do is you know, recognize that we're going to have to have like four or five stimulus bills and rather rather than have one big one that tries to anticipate what, what's going to happen for the whole year. We should try to just get us you know, to the next month. Let, let, so, so we know if we're shut for a month how much harm that is. So let's you know, lend businesses enough money so that they, they don't all go out of business if we're shut for a month. And then if we have to shut for another month, we'll talk about it in a month. And so that year, what happened was we did five little bills. Uh, I mean, they're, they're big if you consider that we had a 32% drop of GDP, right? So, but, but we refilled the hole. And we did it with five little bills that passed with you know every vote for every every Republican every Democrat voted for these bills. They were right sized, carefully calculated by us. So big that, bipartisan that, votes. Big bipartisan votes. You know, and and you forget like Trump was being impeached by these guys, and yet we went up there with bills that they all voted for because they were exactly right sized for uh, the the hole that we were digging by shutting down for COVID. Okay, so that's what happened. And so that when when Joe Biden uh, took over. The economy had completely recovered uh, from COVID. Uh, GDP growth in the fourth quarter was 6%. In the first quarter, it was 6%. Inflation was 1%. Inflation didn't take off because basically we took $10 away by telling the business he had to shut down, and then we gave him $10 you know, by basically borrowing it from future taxpayers and so that we were able to refill the hole. And so we were done. It was fixed. The economy could head back to an upward trajectory. And then Joe Biden comes in, and then he and the Democrats – decide, well, you know, COVID is still out there. Omicron is, is still there. We're still in an emergency. So we have to spend like drunken sailors. And they passed all of these partisan bills without a single Republican vote filled with things like, you know, mail-in checks to people and yes. mail-in checks to people Craziness. if they put solar panels on their roofs and all that kind of stuff. But the point is that, that think about it, Donald Trump was a, a super effective bipartisan. You know, the, the, his stimulus bills got votes from every Democrat because they were actually sensible bills that weren't trying to score political points. Joe Biden came in and he had this massive, massive partisan stimulus that set off the inflationary spiral because he put it on top of basically a hole that had been filled by us. Well, and all of that spending in the span of a little over a year was, when you add it up, a huge amount of money in an extreme black swan emergency. Then a lot of that spending went away. And Biden is pointing to that automatic expiration of a one-time emergency thing as deficit reduction that he and his team have achieved. And really, they're so fiscally responsible, unlike you guys who cut taxes across the board and had the economy roaring before COVID came from China and hit everything. It's just 
a completely specious way to frame this. And and he says that, like, if you see him, he just said uh, a couple weeks ago that that when he took over, there were people in bread lines. The economy was on the ropes, and he turned it around. Well, now the economy is shrinking, and the economy was growing 6% with 1% inflation when he took over. So he's just absolutely spreading falsehoods. And and the thing is that except for people like you – uh, people like Larry Kudlow, uh, you know, the media just lets them do this. We used to go out when I were in the White House, and, and we would say things that were true and get four Pinocchios for the Washington Post. <laughs> right, pants on fire. And, yeah, and, 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 but now you, you look at this, and, and they're, they're just pitching you know, absolute falsehoods. And they'll call them and, eh, half true. Yeah, they're not even half true. Right, they're, no, they're just exactly. Dead, they're just dead wrong. That's, dead the, wrong. that's the fact check spin. Very quickly, 30 seconds, Kevin. Mm-hmm. Have you been surprised how progressive and left this administration has been, especially vis-a-vis the way that this guy sold himself to the public. Yeah, I think that everybody's been surprised by the fact that they're pu- pushing a very aggressive socialist agenda. Uh, the the AOC, if she were president, would be doing the same things. She might try to do a little bit more than, than Biden, uh, but Biden actually has tried to do more than he's been able to accomplish. Right. So if he had Part every problem, wish, if, if all his wishes came true, that that we basically we might as well just have AOC be president, and that's the opposite of, of what he promised. Kevin Hassett is a distinguished visiting fellow here at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He served as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Trump. He has very impressive credentials in this space, and we're honored to have you here. Kevin Hassett on The Guy Benson Show in studio here in Palo Alto, California. Thanks so much for stopping by. great to be here, Kevin. We'll take a break. We'll be right back after this on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here in Palo Alto, California, broadcasting from the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Glad to have you here. In our first hour today, we interviewed Victor Davis Hansen, who's a senior fellow here at Hoover. He's also an author. He's an historian, a very thoughtful and well-informed guy. It's always great to chat with Victor Davis Hansen. Here's part of our conversation from earlier on in today's program. Thus far, almost two years into this administration and the Joe Biden presidency, how does it stack up? What is your assessment of this presidency, historically speaking, roughly halfway through perhaps his only term or perhaps his first term? Well, I look at what they say they've done, and they measure that. They would answer that question in doing something, but what is that something? And I, I look at it differently. What are the results or the lack of results? So we're about in, as you say, we're two and a half years, and we're looking at exactly what happened. So we have a border where people suggested three million people crossed. And when you have Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and some other Democrats saying it's got to be closed, you can see that uh, we're building a consensus that this has been a disaster. And then we have, I just filled up today, so I'm a little bit upset, $7.02 for diesel fuel in California. Part of that is attributable maybe 30% to the world shortages. But when you're coming out of a COVID lockdown and you have natural demand, that is not the time to shut down Anwar, cancel Keystone, and be the first president in modern history to have issued the fewest leases for gas and oil. And that's what he did. And so that create and then to Hector and to Jawbone financial and pension institutions, not to finance uh, fracking and horizontal billing. And that was a perfect storm that 
that was a self-created crisis. And then when we look at inflation, the same thing, the same scenario was true. We were coming back in an area where we, Trump had almost inflated the economy too much, I think, but we had printed about $2 trillion during the COVID crisis. And there was a natural demand peaking. And what did we do? We went, this is debatable, somewhere between two and a half and three and a half trillion dollars. And we created at a time of supply shortage, a self-created eight to nine percent inflation. And now we have two quarters because of energy prices, most likely, but also people dropped out of the workforce. People had long COVID. People were afraid of COVID. We have one of the lowest non-participation rates. So all of that together explains that we're into two consecutive quarters of negative growth. We have, we're back to 1980s stagflation. Afghanistan, it's debatable who did, wanted to do what, but I think it's fair to say Trump wanted to get out but leave a residual force at, at um, Baglam Air Force Base. We put $300 million into it. We put a billion dollars in the embassy. It's disputable again whether it was 10 billion or 50 billion in equipment we left. But we destroyed U.S. deterrence for the near future by the way that we got out of Afghanistan. It was a complete and utter disaster. So when you look at all of this stuff, I think historians are going to ask: Was this inevitable? Was there a war? There was a plague? Was there a war? Was there a natural catastrophe? Was there a Katrina-like situation? Was it Iraq? And the answer is that for the most part, they were self-created. They were ideologically driven by ideologues who felt that borders were ossified concepts or that we were now had a golden moment to force a more rapid transition to alternative energy or that maybe inflation wasn't all that bad. It gets people, spreads the wealth around or we had no business in Afghanistan, or maybe it was incompetence that we wanted to coincide uh, the departure with the 20th anniversary of 9-11, whatever the reason. My full interview with Victor Davis Hanson, senior fellow here at the Hoover Institution, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also part of the free podcast, the entire show, start to finish, on demand, for free, every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. well, I'm not here alone, Cookie is here with me. And we have a few stories about the weekend, our travels, and then big plans for this evening. Wait to hear this next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Monday on the Guy Benson Show. We're at the Hoover Institution in Palo Alto, California, Stanford University. Very happy to be here for the week, and we have some fantastic guests lined up for the rest of the week. We are just getting started here today. This was only the beginning. But I will remind you, before we get into story time, that our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free every day. If you missed anything here, you missed a lot. And you've got opportunities to listen live or to catch the podcast on demand. As always, that is free. So with me here in studio at Hoover is producer Christine. She's on the business trip here with me. Usually she doesn't come along, but I am stuck with her for the whole week. And Christine, we actually landed in San Francisco just a few minutes apart, and I hightailed it from my gate to your gate at the airport. 
And as people were coming off the plane, I was like your welcoming party. And I was pretending like I was meeting you like a driver or a chauffeur. And sometimes someone will hold up an iPad or an iPhone with your last name on it to sort of say, hey, I'm here for you. What did I greet you with? Well, it was very funny. I was coming up the escalator for my plane, and there's Guy holding a picture of a cookie. A yes. chocolate chip cookie on yep. his phone. Just looking for Just a holding cookie. holding it up. <laughs> looking for a cookie here. And she cracked up. So we headed to Palo Alto, got in the Uber. Mm -hmm. And on the drive, you told me all about your story and just regaled me with your tales from Saturday at <sighs> this festival, the school festival that you were forced to volunteer for, volunteer, quote, unquote, by your husband. The weather was not great. I know we talked about it a fair amount last week. And so how did it go? No hot dog costume. So that's already an no, L in your book. No, but there was somebody walking around in a cow costume. I would have looked so good in the hot dog costume, honestly. <laughs> and I truly mean this. When I was standing there, supposed to be helping people, you know, give food. I just kept thinking this would be so much better if I was in my hot dog costume. Like it would be such a hit. Mm. Like we would have brought more people if I was in the hot dog costume. I but you were reprimanded. By some of the other mothers a few times, right, for your perhaps lackadaisical attention to detail on certain serving instructions so, at the kitchen. These people really take their job. I mean, we're all volunteering here, people. It's mozzarella sticks. So apparently I was not putting the right amount, you know, if somebody ordered them. He was a little kid, like, well, let's give him a little more, you know, or a little more fries. Like, they were being stingy with it and... You don't know if we're going to run out of food. Like, they were very strict about this. And as you could tell, I was not. Yeah. And also the quick math, not as easy as you think. Yeah, well, definitely not for some. And so did they pull you off the front line at some point and say she's not reliable? So they did not because, honestly, I was so sociable. You know, like I was talking and I was able to upsell. Like, how are you not going to get a Coke or a Snapple or something with that? You're going to be thirsty. Oh, Let I me see. get you a drink. Yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm good at that. Well, she's definitely a talker, folks, because last night I was doing some work at the hotel. Then I had to go to the gym. <laughs> We're going to go to dinner. And I was texting her, hey, let's push the reservation back just a few minutes. I'm almost down there. She's like, oh, I'm just hanging out in the lobby. And then she said, and by the lobby, I mean the bar. I'm like, well, there's a shock. So I thought to myself, I was in the elevator. I said, I bet you. I'm going to walk in, and she is going to be holding court with a cocktail, making friends with strangers. And I was almost exactly right. It was not a cocktail. It was wine. Mm -hmm. And you had new friends. Yeah. How long had you been there for? Uh, I sat down, and we started talking. Yeah. Like, I, I didn't even get the drink from the bartender. She said she liked my shirt. So I said, okay, let's be friends. Yeah, then all of a sudden, she, like, knows our guest rundown for the whole week. Yeah, so when you walked in, she was telling you how excited she was for us yeah, about our big guest. Yeah, she's like, well, have fun with this. And, and I was like, wow, you really got a lot of information and not very much time from Christina. Thank God none of this is like state secrets. Loose lips sink ships. And the USS Benson would be at the bottom of the ocean right now because Christina was just telling everyone everything. Oh, she was so nice. I went on her. She has a website. She's a motivational speaker. Do you know what else she does? Hypnotherapy. Oh, boy. Here we go. This We didn't even talk about this. So I wrote her an email, mm -hmm. and I gave her my phone number, and I said, hey, I'm the girl from the bar. I feel like I used to say that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Am 
my life. I feel like I've said that a lot. She's going to hypnotize you while we're out here in California. You're getting very sleepy, Cookie. And then somehow I think all the guilt is just going to come bubbling out. What guilt? Well, you had your pony off. I, I don't feel guilty. Carousel. I have but I, no guilt. I think it's internalized. N- and I think no. that's what we're going to discover in our session. The, hip, the hypnotherapy session with your new BFF. Deneen. I <laughs> felt a connection with her. Really. Uh-huh. I truly did. Like, do you know when you just sit down and talk to somebody, like a stranger, and you just feel a connection? Like, you were meant to be at that spot yes, at that time. I feel like you have that a lot. Like, you felt like you were meant to be at the Times Square psychic because they accosted you, and it was meant to be. I still stand by that. Yeah. So, anyway... I did tease this before the break. Mm. Boy, do we have some news for all of you. If you're a regular listener, particularly to the home stretch, you know that producer Christine has a new passion in life. Now, I am concerned that it will prove to be a fleeting fad, as are so many of Christine's passions. But you never know. This one might stick. But within the last month, I would say, if that, two or three weeks. About three weeks. Producer Christine has become, at least by her standards, a rabid NFL football fan. She went from never really paying attention at all and not having any interest to intense interest, following the league, trying to pick a team, getting familiar with some of the stars, betting some of her money on these games, which I think is a mistake. And she was asking about outcomes yesterday. I had to inform her that her Lions lost yet again in ridiculous fashion. The Bills did not. She was asking about certain teams. The Giants won. Tommy lost. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Chiefs are really good. And I was telling you about SportsCenter, and what did I say to you? I'm like, what a beautiful job they do. Yes, they do such a wonderful job presenting all of the things that happen in the games. I'm like, you mean highlights. They do a really nice job. Yes. People should commend them for that. Yes, this is like a Fox News alert from 1994 or something. (laughs) They've been doing... A really good show for a very long time. I watched there. it this morning. You kind of missed Sports Center in its heyday, though. Oh, really? This oh, isn't it? Oh no, its heyday was back in the day, really before the internet and like smartphones exploded. So if you wanted highlights, it was Sports Center. Like you couldn't find it on Twitter. You had to go there. We digress. Mm. The point is, producer Christine, I didn't even put this together. It did not occur to me. It occurred to Cookie that we are here in Northern California. And guess what is happening tonight, mere minutes from where we sit right now. Ba-ba-ba-ba. Ba-bum. Ba-bum. Monday Night Football, Levi Stadium, 49ers against the defending Super Bowl champions, the Rams up from Los Angeles. And we checked a few things. We checked the Uber. Mm -hmm. Time approximately, 20, Mm -hmm. 30 minutes, we think. We checked for tickets on StubHub. And... They really weren't awful. Christine was very exacting about what she would accept, by the way, for tickets. No end zone seats for Cookie. No, and I didn't want to be high up. No, and you said the 400 section was out. Yeah, because you know what happens? It it just happened last night. People fall from the um, escalator. You're not going to fall. That's not... That's not the reason to not want nosebleed seats. Well, it's also too high. Not to be a snob, but... Yeah, you want to be... Really in into it. the action. Yes. Yeah, in, in the whole thing. So, as you may have gathered, Christine and I are going 
to an NFL football game tonight. We are attending Monday Night Football. It will be on ESPN. Maybe you'll catch us. And, Christine, I was thinking about this earlier. I believe this is my first NFL football game, because I go to college games all the time, many per year. I think this is my first NFL game since 2009. Oh, my goodness. I think I went to a Bears game in 09 before I moved away from Chicago. I don't think I've been to an NFL game since. Unless I'm forgetting one or it's slipping my mind, I'm pretty sure it's been well over a decade. Was Jay Cutler the quarterback back then? Mm, I think he might have been, and I'm surprised that you know that name. I, I've been doing a lot of research. Clearly. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, we're going to Niners-Rams tonight. We've got okay seats. We put sort of a, a cap on what we were willing to spend. Well, uh, let's be honest. Bobby, Bobby did. put a cap on. <laughs> Bobby did. And so, yeah, we're going to go there, and Christine is, I would say, like 10 out of 10 excited. I am so, so excited. I can't <laughs> wait to see this, like, in person. Yeah. Um, I just don't know what to wear because you said I shouldn't go. I really do like the Rams. I'm going to say neutral, neutral colors. Okay. And layers, because it just gets cold here, and it can be, in the old place, candlestick was freezing with the swirling winds. Mm-hmm. I think this place is less bad, but I'm just, you won't regret having layers. Okay. And we're just talking about having, like, stadium food. I know. A beer. Some cocktails, maybe. You're going to be, like, yelling on third down and stuff. Oh, my gosh. Like, if there's You're gonna a have to teach me more, controversial too. call, like, you could be, you know, booing. <gasps> I just wonder, are you going to become a fan of... One of these teams, is it meant to be? Because you're trying to pick a team. The first ever game sometimes determines someone's team for life. Not always. Right. It'd be very inconvenient for you to follow West Coast teams compared to teams in your neck of the woods like the yes. Giants or the Jets. Or I'm not even going to recommend the Eagles. Let's not, let's not go there. But I'm just saying you might fall in love with a team tonight based on the in-person experience. We'll just have to report back tomorrow. I know. I'm leaning towards if I'm going to, it's going to be the Rams. I really like that cutie-cute coach of theirs. Mm -hmm. And I like the quarterback. Mm -hmm. But Bobby said, um, who is the quarterback of the 49ers? He's like, you're going to like him. Oh, is that uh, Garoppolo? Yes. Yeah, he's he's sort of got some male model vibes going on. I can't wait to meet them all. Yes, I'm sure you'll you'll talk your way into the into the locker room somehow. I'll be a cheerleader. Yeah, you were telling me that you wanted to end up on the field calling some plays. Uh, you never know. Like you'll become somehow the offensive cookie-nator. I just want to – I need to talk to somebody. Stop going through the middle. We need more around. I don't know if that's the exact terms, but we got to stop going right through the middle. You're not getting anywhere. You're talking about run plays? Sure. Up the gut? Mm-hmm. You're, you're not a fan of that play call. No, I want you to go around. Okay, we're to the edge. Yeah, the and, and, and protect your quarterback. Okay, yeah, well, now, yep. That's, yeah, we I got think, a lot to talk about. There's so much to yes. learn, and I think we'll be doing a lot of learning and teaching tonight at the game. But if you tune in, one of the little dots in the crowd will be producer Christine at her first ever NFL football game tonight here in the Bay Area. I can't believe we're doing this, honestly. <laughs> I, I cannot believe it. it. But it's also, you know what? It's YOLO. It's a YOLO situation, and I'm like, am I going to regret taking Christine to her first ever game? Quite possibly. Yeah, you never know. But. Wait, no, no, let's you're try not. It. No, no. <laughs> I love how you just agreed with that. You're just like, yes, absolutely. No, no, you might. you're going to be so excited. I just hope um, I'm that person in a movie that asks, like, what's happening? I don't understand. You know, I yeah. hope you're going to be okay with I that. I will do my best. Okay. All okay? right. And with that, we're out of time. we got to, like, get ready to 
chip off to the game in a couple hours here. Back here tomorrow on the radio, same time, same place, from the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Amazing guests, as far as the eye can see, all the way through Friday's show, and then, of course, beyond. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you tomorrow. It's The Guy Benson Show. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.